All right, let's take our Bibles and turn together to Jeremiah chapter number one. Jeremiah is going to be our study tonight. We're going to do our best to overview this great book. We looked at Isaiah last week, Isaiah 66 chapters, and Jeremiah just 52 chapters. Both are big books, but by word count, Jeremiah is actually a bigger book, longer book than what Isaiah is. Uh, there are about three prophets in the Old Testament that I think intimidate uh, readers of the Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, just for the sheer volume of, of the books, uh, we, we tend to sort of run away. Uh, but Jeremiah's message is timely, and it's a, it's a critical message to the message of the Old Testament. It comes at an important juncture in redemptive history and the history of God's people and God's plan for his people. Um, we might say of the book of Jeremiah that the message or the key theme is repent and return to the Lord or he will bring judgment. Uh, more simply stated, the message of the book of Jeremiah is justice. It, it is uh, reading the book of Jeremiah in the context of all that's happening in our world is interesting. There is a tremendous amount of interest in our day in what is often referred to as social justice. And certainly much of what comes under the banner of social justice in contemporary conversations is addressed specifically in the book of, of Jeremiah. Uh, there, there tend to be um, two extreme ends of the spectrum when it comes to discussing justice issues or social justice issues. On the one end, there are those that feel as though our primary responsibility to the exclusion of all other obligations or responsibilities is to do all within our power to remedy or resolve any kind of so-called social justice issue. Uh, the reality is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is foremost for us as followers of Christ. It is our primary responsibility to see to the dissemination of the good news of the gospel. On the other end of the spectrum, and equally as dangerous in my estimation, is the idea that we are to completely out of hand dismiss any concern whatsoever in so-called social justice issues to focus exclusively on the gospel. And the truth of the matter is that you cannot focus exclusively on the gospel without bearing out or working through its implications for these social justice issues. I really think the language of social justice is not entirely helpful. We don't need adjectives for justice to modify what it intends. Our interest as Christians is not exclusively in social justice. It is in justice. What I want us to reflect on a little tonight, even as we talk about justice being served in the days of Jeremiah, the judgment of God coming in some way against the people of Israel and even against the neighboring nations God used to bring judgment against the nation of Israel, is that there, there really can never be full and final justice in the here and now. You understand that? There, there really cannot be. But there is coming a day when full and final justice is served. In a courtroom where there'll be no technicalities, there'll be no turning of blind eyes, there'll be no tactical, tactically genius defense attorneys, there'll be no inept or incompetent prosecutors, there'll be no broken system to hide behind. One day before the judgment bar of God 
full and final justice for every misdemeanor, every misdeed that has ever been committed will once and forevermore finally be served. Before we get to the matters of justice in the book of Jeremiah, we have to deal with Jeremiah's call to ministry. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1. We're going to look at all of, of that chapter. You'll see a list there of four key passages in the book of Jeremiah. We're, we're going to look at three of those, and then we're going to close actually with a fourth that's not in your notes that we just can't overlook. We have a historical marker for us in Jeremiah 1, 1 through 3. It helps us to know something about who Jeremiah is, something about the time period in which Jeremiah is prophesying. If you'll remember uh, last week when we talked about the book of Isaiah, we said that Isaiah began his prophetic ministry about 20 years before the northern kingdom of Israel fell. So about 740 for those of you who uh, enjoy or appreciate dates or are fascinated by history. About 740 and following, Isaiah begins to prophesy concerning the destruction of the northern kingdom. Jeremiah comes along about 40 years before the fall of the southern kingdom. For you date takers, the southern kingdom falls in 586 or 587 uh, BC. So there's a period of about 140 years between um, the fall of the northern kingdom and the fall of the southern kingdom, during which time the southern kingdom enjoys a brief revival. They do seem, at least superficially, to heed the example of the northern kingdom. When Israel falls... There, there is a collective reflection about the southern kingdom that says if we don't get our act together, we're going to end up in the same mess that they ended up in in the north. And so there is superficially, it seems, a revival of religious interest in the southern kingdom. But unfortunately, that doesn't last long. The revival of religious interest uh, leads to a season of prosperity, and prosperity does for the people of Israel what it always seems to do for the people of Israel. And if we're honest with ourselves, it does what it does in us as well. It creates this false sense of comfort and assurance, and uh, affluence has uh, sort of... Um, uh, the effect of anesthesia on us spiritually. We begin to be uh, desensitized to the things of the Spirit and uh, presumptuous in some ways. Jeremiah comes along to warn them that their judgment is now coming. They have lived in this manner um, hypocritically and now justice is going to be served to some extent against them. In chapter 1, we have a clear telling of Jeremiah's call to ministry. It functions similarly to the call of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 we looked at last week. Remember we talked about the chronology of Isaiah in those first five chapters. The message of God for the people of Israel is so damning. It's almost necessary, it seems, within the flow of the book to interrupt that in chapter 6 and to say, by the way, Isaiah has not lost his mind. Isaiah is not a crazy person. When he says what he says about you as a nation, it is right. He speaks, thus saith the Lord. Here at the beginning of Jeremiah, we're preparing ourselves for a message that will be so severe so hard to accept for the people of Israel, it's necessary that in the preface to this message we learn, it's clear for us, that we know that Jeremiah is a man clearly called of God. When he speaks, he speaks, thus saith the Lord. In verse 4, the Bible says, The word of the Lord came to me. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. But I protested, he said, Oh no, Lord God, look, I don't know how to speak since I'm only a youth. 
And the Lord said to me, don't say I'm only a youth, for you'll go to everyone I send you to and speak whatever I tell you. Don't be afraid of anyone, for I will be with you to deliver you. This is the Lord's declaration. Then the Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth, and told me, I've now filled your mouth with my words. See, I have appointed you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and demolish, to build and to plant. Jeremiah says, Lord, I don't want to go. Even before that, God says, before I formed you in the womb, I chose you. I have set you apart for this work of ministry. I have called you by name. This has been the game plan for Jeremiah before you were a twinkle in your father's eye. Jeremiah is called by God to serve in this specific capacity. Now, I know when we think about being called by God, we usually think about that exclusively in the context of vocational ministry, a person who has been called to be a pastor, a person who has been called to be a missionary, a person who has been called to serve in, in the context of the church. But I, I really do believe with all my heart that God calls each of us to a specific task. And to utilize the opportunities that present themselves as we work within whatever calling God has issued on our life to advance the gospel. Like, so it, it doesn't matter if you're a, the pastor or a plumber. The, the call on, in, in some ways is the same to share the good news of the gospel. And, and the call should embolden us, right? Right? I have attempted at having conversations in groups of pastors in recent days about the call of God. I used to hear pastors talk about the call of God on their life. And there's almost a reluctance to talk about that now. I don't really fully understand. But I think conver that conversation would be beneficial in pastoral ministry. And I think those conversations would be beneficial in your own life to reflect on the place and time. Uh, the, the, the manner in which you were able to discern the call of God on your life. I know the circumstances may have been somewhat different for me as a pastor because it is vocational ministry and we think in different terms when we think about ministry positions, but there should be for us a clear sense of call. And, there, and I th I'm convinced that there needs to be because that's what emboldens us when things get bad, Right? Like in the dark days of ministry, I don't, I don't reflect upon the gifts and abilities that I have. They're meager. I reflect on the call of God on my life, and that has a sustaining effect. Like if you know that you are where God has called you to be, you can bear with most anything that comes up in your life, in your work, in your ministry, in whatever area of life or arena of life it may pop up. God's call holds us fast, right? Jeremiah says, Lord, I, I can't speak. I'm just a youth. And God says, Jeremiah, I called you. And I'll give you the words to speak. Don't say I'm just a youth. You're not utilizing your natural talents and abilities. You're operating under the unction of the Holy Spirit. It's the call, not only that gives Jeremiah certainty about going forth, but confidence as he performs the ministry that God has called him to. Now, he says, I filled your mouth with my words. 
I've appointed you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, destroy and demolish, to build and to plant. Most of those descriptions of Jeremiah's ministry are not positive. Jeremiah is known in biblical studies as the weeping prophet. The book that follows Jeremiah is what? The book of Lamentations. Jeremiah is also the author of the book of Lamentations. This is a man well acquainted with sorrow. And yet the call seems to sustain Jeremiah regardless of what happens in his life. So we have an idea of ministry wherein we do faithfully gospel ministry and people celebrate that, right? Like you can expect in most churches, in fact in most American contexts with few exceptions, that if you preach the gospel and you do benevolent work under the banner of the gospel, that your efforts will be celebrated. But that was not the case for Jeremiah. For Jeremiah's trouble, he was thrown into a pit and the people hated him. They hated Jeremiah because he always prophesied poorly concerning the people. And yet the call emboldened him to persevere in the ministry, strengthened him in the day of distress. And even in the lowest of lows, Jeremiah could say that God's word was like fire in his bones. He could not keep pent up what God had given him to say. And I replied, I see a branch of an almond tree. And the Lord said to me, you've seen correctly, for I watch over my word, my word to accomplish it. And again, the word of the Lord came to me inquiring, what do you see? And I replied, I see a boiling pot, its lid or lip tilted from north to south. And the Lord said to me, disaster will be poured out from the north on all who live in the land. Indeed, I'm about to summon all the clans of the kingdom of the north. This is the Lord's declaration. So it gives him two images, two visions to verify this call. The first is the almond branch. The almond branch blooms or blossoms in January. While everything else is still dormant and dead, the almond branch begins to bloom or to blossom. It watches over the coming to life of all the other vegetative life in the spring of the year. And, and that vision, God says, is an indicator of God's willingness and power and ability to watch over his word and to watch over the judgment that was to come. And then Jeremiah says, I see a boiling pot and it's tilted such that it is pouring out from the north to the south. A boiling pot is symbolic of calamity and, and disaster. There's judgment, there's danger boiling over in this boiling pot and it's tipping from the north to the south. That is the judgment that God is to bring against the nation of Judah comes from the north specifically uh, through the Babylonian Empire and other nations that have joined themselves to Babylon. The Bible says they'll come and each king will set up his throne at the entrance to Jerusalem gate. They will attack all her surrounding walls and all the other cities of Judah. And then verse 16 says, I will pronounce my judgments against them for all the evil they did when they abandoned me to burn incense to other gods and to worship the works of their own hands. Now we're not going to have a lot of time to really dig into the, some of the middle chapters of Jeremiah where these issues that I referred to as justice issues a moment ago are really addressed in detail. But they're the standard issues that come under the heading of social justice in the contemporary conversation. The rich taking advantage of the poor, 
there are uh, racial injustice issues and that you have uh, native Israelites who are mistreating, abusing, oppressing, taking advantage of foreigners who've come into the land, the mistreatment of, of the servant class of, of people. You have um, loans being issued with incredibly high interest rates. These things are happening all over the place. That's a great injustice in our land that we don't talk enough about. There are a variety of ways that people are being taken advantage of in Jeremiah's social context. But I want you to look again at what is said in verse 16. And this is, this is the balance point for how we as Christian people think about justice issues and remain steadfastly committed to gospel advancement. God says, I'll pronounce my judgments against them for all the evil they did when they abandoned me to burn incense to, their, to other gods and to worship the work of their own hands. That is the foundational issue. All issues, all matters of injustice are born out of idolatry. All injustice is the product of a, a broken relationship between ourselves and God who is in heaven. At its core, at its root, at its foundation, injustice is the product of sin. And the only full and final answer to injustice, the only way that can be resolved, the only hope for reconciliation is the gospel of Jesus Christ whereby we are reconciled to God, the old nature so inclined towards sin replaced by the new, our bodies indwelt by the Spirit of God with a capacity for bearing the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. The answer, simply put, to injustice in our world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It always has been and it always will be. And we needn't ever, ever, ever forget that that is the answer. So we see here in Jeremiah chapter 1 that Jeremiah is called to ministry, called to prophesy, not necessarily to a, a glowing message. We can't even really say that Jeremiah is so much here in the framework of Jeremiah 1 being called to good news ministry. He's just been called to bad news ministry. And the bad news is the judgment of God is coming against the nation of Judah. And the bad news for all of mankind is that the judgment of God is one day coming against our sin. Now, if you'll turn over to Jeremiah chapter 7, this is a passage that helps me to sort of uh, feel a sense of kinship with Jeremiah the prophet. This is a passage that helps us to understand the religious context for Jeremiah's ministry. And as Bible Belt believers, it might help us to appreciate uh, the example that Jeremiah serves to be for us. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse number 1. I, whenever I read this passage, the third sermon that I ever preached in my life was from Jeremiah chapter 7. And I will promise you that the commentary offered in the next few moments will be much better than the commentary offered in that third sermon. Jeremiah 7.1 This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord and there call out this word. Or so go to the temple and stand in the gate. He's not preaching in the pulpit. He's preaching at, at the door. 
Stand in the door of the temple and preach this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Correct your ways and your deeds, and I will allow you to live in this place. Don't trust deceitful words, chanting, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really change your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place, or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves, I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave to your ancestors long ago and forever. But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you've not known? Then do you come and stand before me in this house called by my name and say, we are delivered so we can continue doing all these detestable acts? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. And what follows in the remainder of chapter 7 is a promise from God that like Shiloh of old, he will destroy the, the, this city, the city of Jerusalem, and he will destroy this nation. Now, I would love to give you some great backstory on Shiloh, but the fact of the matter is we don't know because like the city of Shiloh, its history went up in smoke. God is essentially saying, we will make you, I will make you a distant memory if you don't get your act together. Now bear in mind where it is that Jeremiah is to preach the message. He is to go to the temple where the so-called people of God are gathering. And he warns them that you ought not say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. That may sound a little confusing. It's not, well, it doesn't translate well. But in essence, what he's saying is, you think that because you go to temple, you think that because you're a part of the chosen people of God by ethnicity, you think that because you live in the land of Israel, you think that because God has been actively involved in the history of your people, that you can just do anything that you want to do, that you can commit these great acts of injustice, and you're going to be safe here in the temple. Later in Jeremiah chapter 7, we read, he asked in verse 11, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your view? That verse is cited in the New Testament when Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers. And we think that that's being said as a reference to the fact that they were exchanging money or selling goods in the temple court. That was actually customary and necessary for people who are traveling a great distance. What's being described here is the idea of the people going out and committing great acts of injustice, coming back and offering a sacrifice for their injustice, only to leave again fully intending to do what they just offered a sacrifice for having done in their past. They're treating this like a den for robbers, like a hideout, like a place of escape. Let's go out there and commit injustice and run in here and ask that God would absolve the things that we've done in the last six days, only to go out and do them again, coming back and asking God once more to take away our transgressions by some blood sacrifice made 
in the temple. And God says, you're wasting your breath with this temple talk. You'll be no safer from the judgment to come in the temple than you would on the plains of Megiddo. The justice of God will be served. Now consider what he uh, describes them participating in in verse 6. Oppressing the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, shedding innocent blood, following other gods, bringing harm on themselves. This is an, these are in essence the crimes of our day. And in reality, they are the crimes of every generation for the foreigner. It brings about oppression, oppression and disadvantage for the fatherless. I, I got to tell you, when I read passages in the prophets, major and minor prophets, that talk about social systems that are bent against the oppressed or disadvantaged class, the demographic in America that always comes to my mind are children. If you want to know who the oppressed class is in America, those who are disadvantaged, it's the children. Children have zero protection from the time they're in the womb until adulthood. Our system, our society, our culture is not friendly toward children and I could count the ways from now till forever that our kids have an uphill battle from the time they come into this world even before they come into this world we've we've watched two political parties over the last several days if you've been locked in to what's happening in Washington DC and I shudder to think I've reminded you of such things in a midweek Bible study but it seems that at the heart of what we see unfolding before us in the past days is, is a radical insistence on holding on to the so-called right to murder an unborn child in the womb. Can you, can you think of anything more violent, anything nastier, anything uglier, anything more egregious, anything that stirs in you any more anger, wrath, hurt, frustration than the notion of murdering a small child? And, and yet that is the so-called right that, that we've found ourselves collectively as a society fixating upon over the last few days. We, we are Jeremiah's generation, a perverse and crooked generation. And what I'm saying to you, what we need to be very cautious about tonight is, is disassociating ourselves with these kinds of injustices because we're able to say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. I want you to take note of where the message is preached. It's not out at the high places where the Baal worshipers are all gathered up. It's at, it's at the temple where the so-called people of God are. And Peter said it's time that the judgment of God began with the house of God. And we need to be very, very careful that, that we don't get so much focused on the injustice of those who are unlike us that we overlook the injustice in our own experience as well. Jeremiah chastises the people of God sorely here and warns them against that kind of mentality. And I, I just got to say to you, if we can personalize some of the message that we've just read of here in Jeremiah 7, this whole notion of go out and do whatever we want to do for six days and then return to the temple and make a sacrifice so that we're now right again with God, free to go do what we've done in the past all over again in the future. If there's a, if there's a single religious group that that speaks to, that that's descriptive of, I got to tell you, it sounds like a lot of Southern Baptists I know. We need to be very, very careful 
that we don't fall into the pit of Jeremiah chapter 7 ourselves. In Jeremiah chapter 29, this, this is uh, in our list of key passages because it may be the most quoted passage in all of the prophecy of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 29, those first 14, 12, 14 verses I want us to look together at. Jeremiah writes a letter to the exile. So as Jeremiah unfolds, the judgment of God indeed does come. Now between Jeremiah 1 and Jeremiah 7 and here where we are in Jeremiah chapter 29, the, the judgment of God has, has fallen. They tried to um, avert the judgment of God by making an alliance with Egypt. They tried to do everything that they could within their means to uh, stop the judgment of God that was coming against them. And uh, one of my favorite passages, Jeremiah warns them, you better get out of Sin City. And Sin City in the prophecy of Jeremiah is not Las Vegas, it's not New Orleans, and it's not San Francisco. It's the city of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah says the judgment is coming and there's nothing you can do about it. You better get out of Sin City and you better get out fast. But they can't believe that God would bring judgment against them. They see themselves as this special class, insulated, protected in some way from the judgment of God, regardless of what they did, protected against the judgment of God. And no such protection was afforded them. And the Babylonians came under Nebuchadnezzar and began to carry the people away captive. And in Jeremiah 29, he writes a letter to the exiles explaining to them why what has happened has happened. Jeremiah 29 verse 1. This is the text of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exiles, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Jude and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. The letter was sent by Elasa, son of Shaphan, after Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, had sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Not enough syllables for you there? How would you have liked to have been Nebuchadnezzar in kindergarten? Poor kid would have never gotten out. And this is what the letter said. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, I just got to say to you so you can see these as we read. This is the posture that we are to take as Christians in the world. Is the same as the posture the people of Israel were to take in a strange and foreign land. When the New Testament speaks of our being pilgrims, sojourners, strangers... Pilgrims of exile and sojourners. The language of the exile is being taken from the Old Testament to illustrate for us the kind of posture we take toward the world around us, right? The people of Israel did not belong in Babylon, but for 70 years, that's where God placed them. I find it interesting that it's a natural span of life. The people of Israel were confined to Babylon with the promise that one day in the future they would be restored to the land that flowed with milk and honey. That they would think about this, that although living as strangers in exile in a land that was not their home, that one day they would reside again in the new Jerusalem. What Jeremiah describes here concerning the posture of the people of Israel in Babylon
is to be our posture with regards to the world around us. And I keep saying this on Sunday morning, and I'm going to keep saying this for all of my life in ministry because I'm still convinced that we don't get it together. This world is not our home. And we do not have to be so vexed over the insanity we see around us because our primary citizenship is not here. You don't have to be so troubled by everything you see on the news. You just don't have to be. Like when I traveled to another country, when, when, I, when I was in, in India in January before COVID turned the travel world on its head, I heard bad news on, on the television. And I would have conversations with people on the streets about bad things that were happening, happening in India. And here's what I observed. That my, my emotional reaction to those reports were different than what my reaction would have been had I heard those same reports in America. And it was a reminder to me of, of the stark difference in responses to the things that happen around us when we realize this is not my home. If you're here as a believer, this world is not our home. This world is not our home. This world is not our home. Now listen to what Jeremiah says. In verse 5 he says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take your wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. In other words, to live. We may be strangers and sojourners, but, but we, we can't just live this lifestyle of a monk out in a field somewhere in sackcloth and ashes, looking to the sky for the rest of our days, anxious for the moment that Jesus comes to take us home. Now, figuratively, that's the way we live our life, eyes toward the sky, anxious for the day that Christ comes to call us home. But in the meantime, we have business to conduct, a life to live. Our posture is one of productivity, an, an anxiousness for the coming of a day when we are restored to the new city of Jerusalem, but productive and about the business of life and the responsibilities and obligations that God has given us. In the, in the remainder of verse 6, he says, multiply there, do not decrease. Don't shrink back. Seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it has prosperity, you will have prosperity. So here it is. This is the balance, right? If you get on the one hand what I so desperately want you to get when I say this world is not our home. There's a, a modest degree of detachment that comes with that, right? Like, we, we, we're not unconcerned, but we're not fixating on the condition of things around us. And then God says, on the other hand, seek the prosperity of the city to which you've been deported. Seek the peace and the prosperity of Babylon. Pray for the well-being of Babylon. Now put your hand to the task and do anything that you can do personally to improve the conditions of Babylon. For when she prospers, you prosper. Now when I say that, that this is to be our posture toward the world around us, this is what I mean. That although we are to some extent detached in that this world is not our home, this 
city is not our home. This county is not our home. This state is not our home. This country is not our home. This world is not our home. We continue to pray for the peace and the prosperity of this city, this county, this state, this country, this world, because when it prospers, we too prosper. Are, are, you, are you tracking with me this evening? I, I think this is so critically important. And, and I think it's at the heart of the Christian worldview. And it's an opportunity for us to set ourselves apart from the world around us that's running around like their hair is on fire, trying to stomp out every fire that pops up around them. We are resting in Christ, trusting that the answers to the world's issues is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It always has been and it always will be. Steady about the task of communicating that message, understanding that a crazy, lost and dying world around us is going to bear the marks of craziness, lostness, and death. In verse 8, the Bible says, This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. This is your posture toward the world around you. This is to be your posture toward false prophecy. Be aware there's plenty of it. In verse 10, for this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. I will restore you to the place I deported you. If I lost you, I skipped down and I'm sorry for that. This is how we interact with the world around us. Now we're out of time which means that we don't get an opportunity to go and look at chapters 46 through 51, which describe God bringing judgment against the nations. Now, God uses the nations to bring judgment against Judah. And Judah naturally wants to know, well, what about the nations? It's kind of like when my boys are in trouble and one, one is in trouble. Well, what, well, he did worse than I did. Well, he'll get it when I get around to it. That's essentially what God says here. God uses Babylon to bring judgment against Judah, but in the end, God himself brings judgment against Babylon and other nations who join in this as well. Maybe the most important passage in Jeremiah's prophecy and one that we, we don't have time to look at tonight is Jeremiah 30 through 33, where God says, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to bring about a new covenant. When I said to you that there is coming a day when full and final justice will be served, I meant that without qualification. Even for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, who have been called by God, who have been born again through the work of the Spirit, justice for our sin has been served. Think about that. Justice for our sin has been served. For your every misdeed, Jesus died at the cross. The fullness of God's wrath against our sin was paid at the cross. Jesus became our substitute. And we, we think about the unjust acts of, of others and our stomachs are turned and our wrath is kindled, but we don't often have the capacity for thinking about our own sin in those terms. And I just got to say to you, you, you are a far worse sinner than what you could ever imagine. And, and as a believer in Christ, in spite of the depth 
of our depravity as the old man, Jesus' blood atones for our sin. The wrath of God... People cry for justice, but in reality, justice can never be served in this life. What, what is a life sentence for a man who's taken someone else's life? That's not, that's not justice. That's partial justice, but it's not full justice. When you think about justice as it might be served against your sin, it's almost never full justice that you anticipate. But for our sin at the cross, full justice has been served. Full justice has been served. Aren't you glad for Jesus who would drink the bitter cup of God's wrath against us that we might know the promise of a new Jerusalem, a land that flows with milk and honey. Aren't you glad for Jesus? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the chance to study together. Thank you that after the, uh, our natural span of life here in Babylon, as strangers and exiles, that there awaits for us the promise of a new city. God, we pray that you would preserve us, that you would keep us, that you would hold us fast, that you would help us to be able to rightly discern what it means to pursue the peace and prosperity of our Babylon. I pray, God, that you would give us a heart for our city, our county, our state, our nation, and the world, and at the same time, maintain that balance of disconnectedness, God, that reminder that this is not our home. God, forgive us when we come short of that, when we allow ourselves to live in a perpetual state of anxiety as though this world were our home, when we wring our hands at what uh, outcomes will look like, what legislation will mean for us, God. Help us to remember, Lord, that, <laughs> that this is not our home. Help us to bear with the pains and the difficulties and the struggles of our experience in Babylon. But Lord, may we never lose sight of the end goal and our, our true residence. Forgive us where we come short. In Jesus' name, amen.